I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison, and I'm here today with Andy Johnson. How's it going, Andy? Garrett, it's uh, it's wonderful. Just uh, ready for another week. I'm ready for the Women's Open this week, and uh, you know, just daydreaming about return trip to Scotland. Yeah, w- when is that going to happen? Probably not this year. Yeah, yeah, probably not. It's it's hard to go go to all the places that we need to go to. Yeah, travels uh, travels. It's been a lot of travel, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I don't want to broach this subject with uh with Mrs. Friday of uh, of another trip uh to Scotland without her. As as far as she's concerned, you're never going back to Scotland again. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> she knows I got to go back. That wouldn't that wouldn't be realistic. But you made your first trip there recently, and that's what we're going to talk about today. This will in fact be a two part podcast because you saw so many great places in the whatever it was 10 days that you were there and so today we're going to talk about Muirfield Golan Golf Club numbers one and two and Ely so those are the three courses or three facilities that we're going to talk about but you saw a number of other courses while you were there we'll address those in the second part of this podcast now you are in the midst of writing a series about your trip to Scotland. And that's more of like a travelogue, right? You're you're describing sort of your experiences in golf and outside of golf while you were in Scotland. So you're doing that. These podcasts will be focused a little bit more on design. That's the basic plan, right? Yeah, I think that's the plan. Obviously some stuff will probably spill into one and the other, but uh, you know, the uh the writing uh it's been fun to do something a little bit different than just the the hardcore course analysis. It's fun, you know, obviously doing the trip uh with Brendan uh Porath, uh you know, we you find yourself in some humorous moments and uh and and bringing some of those to life like uh like him being uh being confused for Rory McIlroy, five foot eight I'm, Rory McIlroy and six I'm foot baffled. four Brendan Porath. Like it was uh, why did you get a sense for why people thought he was, or why this person <laughs> thought he was Rory McIlroy? No, I. It, so this happened. This happened while I was walking to the terminal for my connecting flight, and and Brendan told me like the guy like came up to him and 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 the best the best my favorite part of the whole story was like brendan's like at the end of it he was like hey good luck next week (laughs) (laughs) and walked away (laughs) and then like got got back to his kids and and family and they were like pointing at brendan (laughs) and brendan thus vacated the premise he had to leave and then when he returned for boarding that's when when the guy's kid asked for a selfie, and Brent is like, "Listen, I am not Rory McIlroy." <laughs> he was forced to acknowledge it. So you wrote about this incident in your first Scotland journal, which is already live on the site. 
But uh, yeah, for people who can't picture this or haven't seen Brendan Porath before, Brendan's like 6'4". He, he is a tall human being. Rory McIlroy is like 5'6". Yeah. <laughs> doesn't have curly hair. Like <laughs> It doesn't look anything like him. Yeah. They're both white. That's uh, that's about the extent of the similarities. So, uh, a completely bewildering incident. There, well, I mean, the funny. other funny thing is like Rory's like probably pretty close to being a billionaire at this point, and uh, you know, like <laughs> he yeah. would not be flying like a commercial United flight through Dulles, like let group, alone- group four United. Yeah, that's not where Rory is these days. So it was uh, it was a humorous start to the trip. Uh, so yeah, it's fun to write about a, a few things that happened and some of the characters along the way, um, and and some of the games and and different things. But uh, but it was a great trip. It was it was really fun. The courses were were delightful. I think like the, I think one of the things I've thought about a ton is like is the architecture that much better there, or do the conditions just allow the architecture to play so much better? And like, I think that's probably a good jumping off point is like some of the architecture is, 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 you know, amateur, um, rudimentary, uh, in in its nature. But I think what, you know, the conditions, whether it's the wind or the firmness and speed of that, of that fescue turf, that it just makes so much of the stuff come more alive and be more relevant, um, it makes the bunkers play much bigger. Um, it, it, you know, and it, it also, you know, the, the fact that you have to play to the fronts of greens all of a sudden make everything way more, you know, in play, right? That front left in, in, in America in, in, when it's 90 degrees and humid and, and super tennis have to play defense on their golf courses. Like we're, we're just trying to keep things alive. Like, you know, when you put a back right pin, the front left bunker is like not relevant at all. But in Scotland, where you're thinking about like, okay, I'm hitting a wedge and I have to land this on the front edge and the pin's back right, that front left bunker all of a sudden is really relevant and putting yourself on the left side of the fairway, you know, causes some distress in your in your mind because you have to deal with that bunker. Um, so I think that's like, one of my first big takeaways is, you know, and, and this isn't, I don't know if the, you know, I think there are some places where the architecture is significantly better uh, or great is great architecture, maybe not significantly better, but I think in a, in a lot of sense, a, a lot of American courses are better designed, but they don't have that ingredient of the, the playing conditions that allow them to actually be better golf courses. And just the land, right? Yes. Because it's the land that allows the playing conditions, first of all, to be great. It's the nature of the soil and the seaside terrain that a lot of these courses are on. But also, you know, you're next to the ocean and you've got this great undulating, often surface to play on. And in a lot of ways, that's more important than architecture. Mm-hmm. Right. That 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 overwhelms the importance of architecture to the degree that maybe design doesn't matter as much anymore. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. And and it's like little things like, you know, you you play North Barrick and we are going to talk about North Barrick here. But like you you tee off on the second hole and you look at the fairway and it's just like, wow, 
and it's running like crazy and there's all these little like bumps and 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 mounds and and you know they're just effectively grass over sand that's been blown around and it's like you know that combined with like it's just that's the stuff that's uh, you know irreplicable in in you know that i just butchered that word but in (laughs) in, i know what you're going for in uh like kansas in the middle of kansas you can't have that like obviously prairie dunes has some of that at the at but like you know for most metro areas atlanta just doesn't have that right um and they don't have the 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 weather with like the cool, pretty much cool. It was pretty warm some of the days we were there, but the cool weather in the sand to have the playing conditions that they have. So I think like the first thing uh, about Scotland and just in general is like it's just a it's a marvelous place to maintain a golf course, and it, you know, and especially if you're playing the seaside links courses, you know the you have everything you want for a low input phenomenal playing surface yeah you know and a lot of these courses that you played are in a way pre-golf architecture yes you know golf architecture wasn't really architecture until somebody had to come in and make changes in order to adapt a particular piece of land to golf at a lot of courses in scotland there wasn't much adaptation necessary Therefore, there wasn't much architecture necessary. There was design that went into placing the tees and the greens and, um, you know, laying out the course, but they weren't moving much earth or having to do things to the soil in order to make it play in an ideal way because the land was already ideal. And so, you know, looking for golf architecture at a place like Ely, you know, I'm not sure that's the point. You know, it's a designed golf course, but it's not a an architected golf course. I know that's not a word. I don't know. I think Ely's got, a, a, you know, a pretty sophisticated routing. You know, if we yeah, wanted to... Yeah, and that's design. That's what I'm referring yeah. to as design. Yeah. Architecture, what I'm, you know, this is what... Mackenzie makes this distinction. I'm not sure it's like a legitimate distinction. People, Somebody could argue me out of this, but... An architect comes into play when you're moving stuff around, when you're having to do complex things in order to adapt a site to golf. Mm-hmm. That that makes sense. Yeah, I I, and I think that's the thing is so much of it's just found right. It's mm-hmm. yeah the golf there. I I it's funny. I went to uh I went to the beach with the, the day after I got back uh with my family and and it was uh you know, Northern California beach. And, uh, and it's just like sitting in these sand dunes and I just was looking at it, you know, and I was like, well, this would be a golf course in Scotland, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. And it, it, and it's a, it's a beach in Northern California. So the weather, you know, it's pretty much like 60 degrees there all year round. You could probably have, you know, it's like where this is protected land. This is a national park beach that I'm at. You know, in Scotland, this might be a golf course and be one of the best golf courses in the world. You know, um, it's just the nature. You look at like the way the sand. It's just like, oh, this would be perfect. You know, cool, cool weather, constant wind, and uh, and sand dunes. Well, that's sort of our introduction, I suppose. Why don't we get to Muirfield? This is the home of the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers, which predates Muirfield by quite a bit, right? It's one of the sort of original golf clubs, but they moved to from one site to another 
in in their early decades. I think this is a little bit confusing for Americans because we don't really have. But, you know, the best way to describe it is the club. You know, if you're talking about the the group of people, it's the honorable company of Edinburgh golfers. If you're talking about the place, the golf course, it's Muirfield. Right. The club is not necessarily the same as the place. Yes. Whereas in in America, I mean, it's almost always the case that the club is the place. Yeah. So in the, in the, one of the reasons is that this place this this club has a lot of history before it, it settled on Muirfield as its is long term home and it it shared spaces before it got to Muirfield so it wasn't like they had other courses that were exclusively exclusively theirs before they got there um, but obviously a, a extremely historic place um, a historic club and place. Uh, it was the, you know, the first play, the, they wrote the first rules of golf, you know, that's how it, they had the first golf competitions with the silver club, you know, uh, trophy that, you know, they had like the first trophy in golf. They were fundamental in, in getting the claret jug made. They have a claret jug. They're, they're one of, I think five or six, you know, I, they, multiple people told me this. I'm sorry. I can't remember five or six places that have their own claret jug. You know, so this is a this is a fundamental golf course and club in Scotland. And obviously it'll be the host this week of the AIG Women's Open. Historically has been a club that did not have women members. It, uh, you know, I think, you know, they had they had been removed from the open rota after 2013. And I think part of the the mandate was to adapt with the times and, and to the club's credit, they have done that. Um, and they're hosting this week. And I think that, you know, I think one of the things you'll see them kind of back into the open rota. And I think they're going to host a lot more women's opens going forward. And that's wonderful because, you know, you could make an argument that this is the most well put together uh, Scottish links course uh, that there is. Yeah. We were talking earlier about how a lot of courses in Scotland are kind of like, made before the period when golf architecture had advanced to a a polished i suppose level i'm not saying that's better but that's just what it was but before golf architecture truly became you know ultra professionalized Muirfield is not an example of that right this is a well built golf course or a, a, a golf course built in the modern way as that was understood in the 20s and that's because it was completely redesigned by Harry Colt in the early 20s, right? The original course at Muirfield was routed, designed by old Tom Morris. It was on a small, small plot of land. Um, small piece of land, yeah, kind of pretty short holes, really, for the most part, and traveled in more or less a counterclockwise route around the property. It started hosting Open Championships early on, but the first Open Championship that it held, it actually got kind of shelled for uh by the standards of the period that there were some low scores at the i think it was the 1892 open and so it was not a super well-regarded course after it opened um i think that the general consensus on it is that it was you know somewhat unappealing and and not all that challenging well okay maybe its reputation kind of changes as it evolves over the next couple of decades i don't know that much about that but what I do know is, of course, Harry Colt came in in the early 20s and redesigned it completely, 
made it into more or less the golf course it is today. The club obtained, I think it was 50 additional acres of land. And when they did that, that's when they redesigned, they brought Colt in to completely redesign the golf course. And at that point, that's where Muirfield then ascended. And and if you know anything about Harry Colt, Harry Colt is really the, you know, you t- we don't talk about him a lot in America, and that's because he didn't design a lot in America. What he did was he hired people like Charles Allison. Alistair McKenzie worked for Harry Colt for a while, but those guys did the traveling. Harry Colt, he didn't like to leave the U.K., you know, so if you go to the UK, there's lots of Harry Colt golf courses and, and Harry Colt has designed and, and been a part of, uh, you know, of places like figuring out and putting together the final product of Pine Valley and Royal County down, you know, like he, yes. he has, he and is Royal a, Portrush. yeah. And, and obviously Muirfield. So he has, he has a, his roster of golf courses is just extraordinary. And he's not well known in America because he didn't design a lot of courses in America. But this guy, if you go over to the UK, he is, you know, the bee's knees. He's, you know, you know, the the guy. So and one of the things that was he was fundamental in in golf course architecture history was he was the first one that really made golf architecture a profession. So, you know, in America, Guys like McDonald uh, at the time, Tillinghast, are building courses, but they are extraordinarily wealthy individuals who are kind of just doing it for fun. They're doing it, building courses for their friends, their rich friends. Harry Colt was the first one that kind of formalized the profession, started charging fees, built a firm out to a business around this. So that is, uh, you know, kind of like a... An, he was a professional golf architect. Muirfield brings him in and they built like it's a really well thought of golf course. It's, a, you know, one of the things you immediately and obviously the land there is different than a lot of Lynx land. But one of the things that Muirfield doesn't have, it's got a routing that moves a lot of different directions as opposed to like, you know, the old course you saw at the open. It plays out and back, you know, with the loop is a place where it kind of jogs around a different direction. But Muirfield, it plays counterclockwise around the edge of the property, uh, and then it plays the opposite direction back around the inside of the property, clockwise around the inside of the property. So, like, it might be reversed from that. I think it's clockwise. It is clockwise. The you know something that threw me for a loop. The the Scots say anti clockwise. Yeah. Yep. yep. So. That's a that's a phrase that throws me off as well. Yeah. No. But suffice it to say. The uh, one nine goes one direction around the perimeter and the Mm -hmm. next nine goes the other direction around the interior. And this is sometimes referred to as the Muirfield routing, Mm -hmm. right? When other golf courses emulate this basic routing arrangement, people often look at that and say, oh, that's a Muirfield routing. So it's really identified with this golf course. The one hole on the golf course that stands from that old Tom uh, routing is the second hole. So it's a really neat hole too. It's got great strategy. Uh, you know, it's got the the wall that sits on the on the green. It's got the boundary line up the left. It's got bunkers on the right. It's a, it's a really neat little hole. Um, the first hole's job really is to just get you out, and the the second is where you start to encounter some really interesting land. Like the first hole is super flat. You know, it's hard um, because it's you know pretty narrow and long, and it plays into a prevailing wind. 
but then that second hole really introduces you to the the ground and the types of things that you'll see throughout the rest of the golf course. Um, but so they that this routing that they constructed, like the thing that it does is it's constantly moving different directions. So the wind is never you know, you're not playing the same wind hole after hole after hole, and then you switch and you play the same relatively same wind hole after hole after hole, right? So that's one of the big things that it does differently. I think the other thing that I notice a lot with, with Muirfield is it has a little bit more eccentric greens. You know, it, it's got some more, you know, you you get out there, the 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 fifth hole is an example. It's got like kind of a two-tiered green. The, you know, you go on that stretch of golf from really like five through um through 18 and there are some really neat greens in that stretch uh like the 11th the uh the i mean the the 15th has a great green the 17th is a really neat punch bowl kind of green but they have some a little bit more like you can tell professional greens right they aren't just kind of like how the land sits or a built up plateau like they are they are they have different pockets that impact strategy as you go back and relate back to the hazards they aren't just like oh let's dig a dig a bunker here the bunkers are the other thing like colt was really known for his cross bunkers and at muirfield you see these bunkers they have them that sit across fairways there you you wonder oh like if you looked at it on google earth you're like how does that relate but they have profound impact because of the turf and the speed of the turf. Um, a great example is the eighth hole there. It's a par four. Uh, it's a big one. It's on the corner of the property. Like, you know, it's kind of the end of the, your loop around the property. And, you know, you, you have these cross bunkers that sit probably about 30 yards, 25 yards, 30 yards in front of the green. And they're built up. They obscure your view of the green a little bit. You can still see the green. One of the big things at Muirfields, there's only one true blind shot, but there are a lot of like semi-obscured blind shots, like where they're partially blind. And this is one of them. And you're hitting and like, you know, in America, these these bunkers would have no, you just hit it to the green, but everything pitches down, you know, everything's running away with the property. And really, you know, you need to land the ball just barely over those bunkers and then it runs into the green. And if you land, if you fly it to the green, you're probably going to end up over the green and there's a bunker back there. You know, you can get yourself in some trouble, but you know, for the most part, going past the green, as long as you miss that bunker is a, is a pretty simple pitch back up. And I don't think a lot of people will hit them into them, but when you give them the wide berth, what ends up happening is you end up over the green and you, you cost yourself a chance at making a three. Um, you know, likewise, like, you know, the 10th hole has got a great, it's a, it's a big par four. It's a good example of like, you wouldn't think these cross bunkers that are like 55 or 60 yards from the green have any relevance to the hole until you miss the fairway. And if you miss the fairway, then all of a sudden where you want to get your ball to, which is like, you want to try like you're hitting out of like thick rough. You want to just try and run something up by the green. All of a sudden, you're like, well, I can't. I got to lay up back of these cross bunkers. And like then all of a sudden, I've got a full shot in. And this got like way more complex. Like Making a par became a very difficult. Like, it, you know, you think about pro golf, like hit it in the rough. Like you see these guys 
they just hack it up there by the green and, and then their short games are so good they get up and down these bunkers prohibit your ability to get up there uh and and so you start to see these crossing hazards and how they impact play and how they emphasize different aspects of it. Um, you know, they have other cross. We just talked about two bunker bunker complexes that cut all the way across the fairway. You know, they also have them that cut in on diagonals. And the 12th hole is like a great example. Of that is a shortish par four. It plays into a prevailing wind. But, you know, the way the, the green relates to everything, you want to push it up towards that left side to keep, you know, to make your approach into the green a better angle and to use the slope of the green to your advantage. But, like, you need to get kind of close to those. And the thing about these bunkers, why they're so intimidating, they're tiny, right? And being tiny little pot bunkers, you get really bad lies in them. You can get into some spots, like, really, like, the worst thing... The worst feeling is when you see your ball just like trickling towards the bunker and you see it just like slowly drop in because you know you're on an edge, right? And they aren't going anywhere. But the other aspect about these bunkers, in, and you saw it a lot at the Open at, at St. Andrews at the old course, they play really big. You know, the contouring around them swallows up balls with the speed of the turf. So these bunkers play a lot bigger and they exact a huge penalty. Like a lot of times you're just like, you're chipping out. You're hitting an explosion shot like you would hit around the green out to just chip it out. You know, I think that's the big thing with Muirfield is like, you know, the bunkers and the rough exact a huge penalty out there. And it's it's really a golf course that you have to drive the ball extraordinarily well. So what you've described is kind of a well-designed course. Yes. That there is some architecture that has gone into this course from Harry Colt. And, and that sort of makes it stand out in a way from a lot of the very much older courses in Scotland. Not saying it's better or worse. It, it, it's just a thing. It's different. Yeah, it's different. All right. So with Muirfield, I've always sort of been puzzled about this course because there's a big gap between, I think, how Muirfield appears to a distant viewer how you might react to pictures of it and how you might react to it being on television like it was at the 2013 Open and how players who have been to the course talk about it. Many players say this is one of the very best courses in the world. This place is incredible. But when I look at pictures of the course, that doesn't immediately jump out to me the way it does at, say, Royal County Down or Royal Portrush, where clearly, oh my God, what an incredible, spectacular course. Muirfield is, the land is is more subtle. It's not right next to the ocean. I know these are sort of shallow impressions of somebody who hasn't been there, but I, I'm just wondering whether in your visit there, you saw what really pushes it over the top. I mean, a lot of courses are strategically sound. So what makes Muirfield so special you know, to make people react to it the way they do. I think that obviously golf architecture today driven by photos, you know, like people looking at photos is <clears throat> so much of it centers around dramatic features that photograph. Well, like when you have dramatic features, you get the big shadows as in, you know, you know, they pop and people say, wow, 
I can't wait to play that place. And and somebody that has capitalized on dramatic features, you know, is the uh, like the Kaisers, like the Sand Valley, Abandoned Dunes. They are filled with these dramatic dunescapes. Like, and meanwhile, there are courses. If you go down the list of of courses, like the best course in the world, a lot of the stuff is a little bit more subtle. A lot of the best features for golf are smaller, right? It's the the little undulations, the little rolls that are really great. Like, you know, when you have these big features, big dramatic dunes and big hills, like balls end up in the same spots. When you have the little features, the ball can kind of roll and pinball around and and end up in different places more so than when you have like I'm either on top of the hill or I'm down on below the hill. You know, you get much more random bounces. And I think that's the thing with Muirfield is that from the eye, from from drone photos especially, a lot of stuff gets flattened. It's it's just these little movements, these little changes, the way the course just kind of moves slightly different directions. Like your brain is always thinking like you're you're highly engaged on every shot out there and i think that's the thing about it right is that there aren't any spots where you can take off sometimes when you have big movement right you're thinking if i just get it over that that hill it's going to shoot down and it'll end up here right at muirfield you're constantly worried about where the ball is going to end up because it's a little bit more, you know, you have to really plot your way around there. And it's not, you don't feel like you can take any shots really off. Hmm. Do you think that's what's going to make it a compelling place for the Women's Open this week? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, the way the ball reacts on the ground there, you have to have such control of your golf ball. And where we're talking about the most accurate uh, players in the world professional women golfers are extraordinary at driving the golf ball. And this is a golf course that demands precision off the tee. It demands you to be in the right places. And then from there, you know, the approach shots are much more manageable when you're in the fairway and you have control of your golf ball. Um, that being said, you know, with the greens being a little bit more well thought out, you have spots where you have to be in certain places to attack. So I think like every everything with the women and and the way the turf the turf conditions and the design, you know, their their shots are really gonna come alive out there in the in the people that are playing the right shape. You know, that's the thing I think with Lynx Golf too, when you combine wind and the speed of the turf, it really matters to hit the ball the shape and the trajectory you want. You know, if you're gonna try and hit a cut. If you're trying to hit a cut seven iron into a green and you catch it a little on the toe and it draws and it carries two yards further and has the hook spin, you end up over the green. Then that's the really cool thing about Lynx golf. And and when the when the turf conditions come alive with, with championship golf, is that it doesn't it's not just about hitting good shots. It's about hitting great shots and hitting the right shot. And that's what's going to be so fun to watch with the women because you're going to see, hey, who's driving the ball great? And and I think, it, you know, my, my qualm with Muirfield would be that the rough is, is a little too thick. They have a lot of pride in their thick rough, which I think is, is kind of silly. It removes some of the, the um, heroics of, of recovery um, that, you, that is so great about golf. But with the women, 
I think the fairways are actually a very appropriate test. And like, you know, with a, with a little bit tighter dispersion, it's a, it's a wonderful place where like, you know, it's not just going to be a driving test because like these, the best women in the world can go out there and they could hit every fairway. And I think that's always a good thing. Like if you drive the ball, well, you're, you're going to pass the test with flying colors, but then from there, it, it, you have to pass the approach test. You have to pass, you know, you have to be really good around the greens and you have to putt well, right? That to me, when something's not a prerequisite and driving accuracy for the women won't be a prerequisite because they're such good drivers of the golf ball, right? You have to drive the ball well, you know, and if you drive the ball extraordinary, you will, you can hit every fairway. It'll also be a prerequisite not to have any super wild drives, which applies a little bit of pressure, right? You can't make a big mistake or you're going to really pay the price with that rough out there. But yeah, I mean, so your objection to the rough would mostly be for everyday amateur play. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I you know, one of the players, I'll keep, keep them nameless, like in our group, it was right off the plane, didn't have a good driving day. And, you know, all day we were just looking for golf balls. And, and that's not really fun. And, you know, like you, we went and played eight other places. This wasn't an issue anywhere else, and including the old course that had just hope, hosted the Open Championship, you know? So, like, to me, looking for golf balls is perhaps the worst uh, aspect of golf. I like don't ask for help looking for my ball because I don't want to help people look for their ball. You know, it's an it's an awful aspect of golf. And what happens, and this is a little bit of the case with Prairie Dunes too, and some other course in America, but like what happens is like you've got this great design and and in a way it's ruined because it's like both both sides of the fairway are ponds. You know, and it's like an inevitable lost ball or out of bounds stakes, even worse if you're playing really rigorous, rigorously by the rules. Like it's like out of bounds. You can't find your ball and you're, you know, you hit it there and it, you're going back to the tee. And, and that, that's, I think, my big, my big, uh, like I would hold Mirfield at a, in a higher regard if they had more manageable rough. And and from what I've gathered this year, the rough is about as manageable as it's got ever, ever been. Yeah. That, uh, the famous list of Alistair McKenzie's principles of golf architecture. The eighth one is there should be a complete absence of the annoyance and irritation caused by the necessity of searching for lost balls. And, you know, you don't have to agree with all of Alistair McKenzie's principles, but I think that's a pretty solid one. We all know that feeling of searching for a ball that's just off the fairway, but you can't find it all of a sudden. That is a kind of n unnecessary unpleasantness in golf. And it has to be said, a lot of links courses in the UK and Ireland right now have been growing rough recently. It is something that you hear from people who live there and play a lot of golf. There's more and more big, juicy sort of American style rough, and we could really do without that. I think it, it, from photos I see, I think Ireland has has the plague of thick rough the most. It seems like it, you look at the rough there and I look at it, it's like one yard off a 30 yard wide fairway. I'm like, oh, my God, like you possibly find your ball in there. Um, you know, these are just photos. I, I haven't been over there. So, you know, but like just from photos, I see it just looks looks awful. I think one thing uh, I do want to talk about is like. We've talked a lot about Harry Colt, but Tom Simpson, another great architect that 
that uh, Americans don't really know about made huge contributions at, at Muirfield. Um, he, he took out a bunch of bunkers when he came in the 19, I think 1933, he, he renovated the course a little bit. He came to assess it. He took out a bunch of bunkers. Uh, he added a bunker on the ninth hole, which you'll hear about the Simpson bunker in the approach. It's kind of like right where you want to hit it. It's a, it's a brilliant bunker. And, uh, and then he moved the 13th hole. So one of Muirfield's iconic par threes, it's, it's, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous green site. I mean, it's a green, it's just a quintessential Lynx green. It just sit par three green. It sits in a dune. Um, it's got bunkers and it, it just, you know, it's a, a jaw droppingly beautiful par three. Um, the 13th, that is his hole. He designed that completely. And, uh, just another one of the, and one of the neat things in the clubhouse is, is they have some Tom Simpson sketches, which he was like the, the great golden age golf artist, uh, of, of all of them. His sketches are beautiful, and he's also a great. He was also a great thinker about golf course architecture. The book, The Architectural Side of Golf, is a must read. Yeah, you have my copy. I've been been one. I don't. Back. Do I have you, your copy? Yeah, you're. I you're didn't. Book, I thought I bought my copy. You're a book book. Uh, you know, you give Garrett. You have book, my copy of To the Links Land by Michael yeah, Bamberger. I do. You didn't. You didn't give well, that back tra- to me. We traded. That's no, the, that I was bought the trade. this copy. That, no, you didn't. That that was the trade. I got. I got Linksland. You got the architectural side of golf. I remember All this right. distinctly. All right. Well, we need to trade back at some point. But uh, in any case, it's a it's an amazing book, and and Tom Simpson is is one of the truly like great thinkers about golf course architecture. He says things that are a little bit different from from everybody else, and is, uh, highly worth uh, listening to and and going back to because he's not as commonly read as your Mackenzie's and, uh, and other authors of, of that period. This episode is brought to you by Gooder. Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses for anyone. So it's averaged over 100 degrees in Portland this week. I've definitely been relying on my Gooders. I have multiple pairs. And one thing I really like about them is that they're a large size to fit my relatively large noggin. They also have a golf-specific lens that I'm, I'm not exactly sure what it does, but things look very vivid and sharp, so you can kind of pick out the golf ball against the sky. It's pretty cool. Gooders are comfortable, stylish, and lightweight, and they are 100% UV protective and 100% polarized in all styles. So treat yourself to a pair or two. They are very affordable. And here's the deal for fried egg listeners. Gooder is going to give you 15% off your entire order. Go to gooder.com, that's G O O D R.com slash TFE, and get 15% off when you use code TFE at checkout. All orders over $50 get free shipping in the US. Again, that's code TFE at G O O D R.com slash TFE. Look good, golf gooder. We should move on to the other courses we are going to discuss today, which are Gullen and Ely. We will touch on these courses slightly more briefly than we did uh, on Muirfield. You know, Muirfield, you're going to see that on your TV this week. So we thought we'd go a little more in depth there. But uh, let's talk about Gullen. What is the land like at Gullen? Because from what I hear, it's a little bit different from a lot of uh, Lynx land that you see out there. 
Absolutely. I so you can't talk about Gullen Golf Club without talking about the co- town of Gullen, right? It's this, uh, you know, you drive. It, it was a neat experience coming to Scotland the first time and going straight to the town of Gullen, right? You uh, you get off the plane, you get in the car, and you're driving, you know, on a highway, and then you get off and you get you're driving to the town of Gullen, and you, you pass like Kilspindy right on the sea. Then you go to Loughness New, which is in Gullen. Uh, it's kind of at the foothills of of Gullen Hill, which we'll talk about in a second. You see Loughness New, and you see the golfers playing Loughness New, and then you get to Golan Golf Club, which is situated at right at Golan Hill, which is on I think the south side of the town, and you just see all these golf holes all over the place. I mean, there's three courses at Golan, so there's golf everywhere, and you have Loughness New right next door. There's just golf everywhere you can see, and it's golf over this hill. So you have this big hill that the golf course sits on and there's constantly golfers going up and playing down it. So it's just like your entrance into Golan is this great hill where the golf club sits and and there's just always golfers on it. And it's just like, wow, this is golf, right? Like this is a, this is where you, you know, this is a town is centered around golf. So the town sits just North of the hill and the golf club. And like, really the, the club is an extension of the town. So there's three golf courses there. There's Golan One, which people will, will know of because of the Women's Scottish and the Men's Scottish Open that have been played there recently. Uh, uh, Ricky Fowler won there and Brandon Stone and Aria Jutanagarn. So Golan One is the most well-known uh, golf course at Golan. Uh, but that being said, we played Golan Two first at the day after Muirfield. And that golf course you hear nothing about. And I, I try... When I travel, I don't like to read anything about any golf courses, so I kind of have my own thoughts, uh, you know, and don't know anything going in. Um, Golan Two, I I walked away. I'm like, how have I? How's nobody ever told me about Golan Two? Like this is an extraordinary golf course, and I think you know both of them. You tee off on one side of the hill, and the majority of the golf is on the other side of the hill. So early in both rounds, one of the the downsides of, of both these courses is you are scaling a giant hill. <laughs> so you have, you know, and I think Golan one gets over the hill a lot cleaner than Golan two. Um, so Golan one, the second hole, which is typically the first hole. So one of the things with Golan, um, the one, the championship course at Golan uses a couple holes from Golan two. They use the seventh and the eighth holes, uh, which are, they're they're fine holes. They're but I don't think they're in any ways the best holes at Golan two. But the uh but Golan one, you know, the 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 way it gets and I think it might be a little bit, you know, one of the benefits is it went over the hill a little bit at a, at a little less severe of a spot in the hill. So, you know, it's a great uphill par four that's got this skinny green that's benched into the hill. That's the way it gets over the hill. And then you play and you go up it again and, you know, we can talk about going one a little bit more, but going two, you know, you start off on one side of the road that runs through town, you cross the road. There's a great par four that kind of like one of those classic short par fours over a ridge that bends along the side of a ridge. Um, and then the third hole is a short par four that literally plays like straight up the hill. 
And it's a very rudimentary way to get over the hill. Like there was not much thought and Willie Park designed this golf course. Willie Park Jr. Yeah, you just play straight up the hill. And it's not it's not a clever way to get over the hill. The whole, you know, you're climbing up it. Allegedly they keep they have a defibrillator now cuz they've had, they call it heart attack hill. <laughs> They've had like numerous issues with, you know, with people having heart issues as they go over this hill. Like it is a intense climb and it's, you know, it's a 200, you know, you hit driver and you're just right up by the green effectively. It's a, it's a par three and a half, but then your reward is maybe the best hole on property is the fourth hole immediately after that. And you just are, you're opened up to this expansive view of the Firth of Fourth. Um, and you're just playing down and it's just a great long par four that's got, you know, you, where you want to hit it, there's bunkers. It's it just, so that really, I think is where goal and two shines is once you get over that hill is extraordinary golf. And one of the neat things after playing Muirfield, it was the second round, you know, you go out to play and you don't come back. Muirfield comes back. It's got returning nines. Goal and two, you go out and it and it starts this journey away from the town, right? You go over this hill and you're you've left town, right? You start in it, you've left town, and you're out and and you're on this journey. And one of the neat things about goal and two is that unlike goal one, you really kind of go on this exploration. You get down really low, down near the sea, and you know there's walking trails like you have the right to roam in Scotland. Um, you know, property lines don't hold as much weight as they do in America. So one of my favorite things about, about going Two is you're getting down into this, the low dunes land, uh, especially into the back nine, you know, some dramatic shots. Like, you know, you get the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th really is an amazing stretch of golf in this low dunes land. But you're down there and you're like amongst people hiking around. And to me, so many times, like the great golf is like in places where you would want to go on a hike. And there was something about, you know, this is the second, it's the first round that I'm not like super jet lagged. (laughs) It's like, I I got some sleep and like you're playing this round and you're, you're on this journey away from town and you know, you're going to go back to town at some point. But you get down and you're with the people that are just hiking in the in the dunes along the sea. Um, and in, in those holes down there are, are really extraordinary. You get down low in the sea and, and, you know, there's a ton of topographical movement when you consider the hill you go over. Then you kind of cascade down into the low sea land and then you come back over the hill and back to the clubhouse. It's a um, it's under 100 pounds. And, you know. I think one of the things I took away is like, if you consider going to Scotland, if you're, if you're thinking like, okay, I'm at the age where I want to make five, six trips to Scotland over the course of the rest of my life, the way you should do it is you should center around towns and East Lothian's a great place to center around. Gullen would be a wonderful place to center a trip around. And the cost of these trips substantially goes down when you do it this way. So it makes it, you know, find a cheap flight, book your flight, center around one area, and you can keep the cost manageable because there's great courses like Golan 2 
that you're never going to read about because they aren't in the open rota. You're never going to like hear about them. But this is a golf course that, you know, if it was in America, would be one of the great public golf courses in America. And it would be the greens fee would be crazy. There it's 95 pounds, right? This is a 100% golf course you should see if you're interested in architecture. It's a wonderful place to play and it's 95 pounds. And I started to think about it. It's like, all right, like this is how you make this trip manageable if you want to do multiple trips, it's like, it doesn't have to be a crazy, like you, you get your head, you, your home. The other thing is you, you limit your driving time. You get to experience the town, uh, aspect of these places and you can center your, your, your golf in, in an area. And this is a, around for less than a hundred bucks. And I'm not sure we've mentioned this, but there are three courses at Golan. You played two of them, but there are three. So there's a there's a lot of golf to be had, and there are a ton of courses clustered in the East Lothian area. And then Fife is not not far away. Well, Fife it is being far. Where, it's two hours. It's a two hour drive, but it's ma- it's manageable, is what I'm saying. It's not like you have to, you know, pick up and and go on a huge trek or take another flight to get to the area of St Andrews and and well, all that. Well, let me just say this way: like one of the cool things we we weren't planning on playing the old course. We got lucky. Um, and we got to play it Tuesday after the open. And that day we had planned to just play North Barrack, maybe play North Barrack twice. Uh, but you know, and one of the things I was really looking forward to was like, you know, you go there and you want to play as much golf was like having a little bit of downtime to explore the area. So we get this Tuesday afternoon tea time at the old course. We can't pass that up. And the worst day, the worst part of this entire trip outside of food poisoning was the four hours in the car to go from North Barrick to the old course and back to go oh, and like, back. Okay. Yeah. So we had to go there and back. And in that time was just, it, it was, you know, that was the worst part of the whole trip was spending time in the car. And that's where I would urge people. There is plenty of golf in Golan and East Lothian for a week. Like there were a couple places that I didn't see that I really wanted to see. I wanted to see Luffness, uh, new, I wanted to see uh, the third course at Gullen. Um, so like those would be things like we sp- we played a ton of golf there. And in some of these courses you want to see again, I would recommend playing North Barrick twice if you can. Like that, that would be something I would do. Uh, Dunbar was really, really a neat spot. And we'll talk about it more. But like these are places you should see. And, and what you're going to do is you're going to have a more enjoyable trip because there's going to be way less time in a car which I think is the worst part. Uh, just like looking for golf balls is the worst part about golf. The worst part about a golf trip is spending uh, extensive time in a car. Right. That is what's tough about it, by the way, is that a lot of people will go to Scotland and, and say to themselves, well, this might be the last time that I go. And so can I really not go to Royal Dornick? I have to go to Royal Dornick. I have to see that. And and that obviously adds on a, a big piece of driving to your trip. But in any case, the the ideal would be to locate yourself in one place and really explore it deeply. And we haven't mentioned like Golan in terms of its uh, affordability and its uh, character as a as a place for golf is very different from Muirfield, you know. Yes. And they're right near each other, so you're getting kind of both Same ends town. of the spectrum. Yeah, and Muirfield has uh, guest play on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So those are the days that they're open for guest play. So like, that's another thing. Like if you're, 
doing in and you do the full day at Muirfield, so you have thirty six holes there. So it's like you know you start to think about it. It's like if you want to do a full day at North Berwick, you want to go around that place twice in in Muirfield. It is a full day that that occupies two days of a of a seven day trip, and then you have all these other courses that are very good. Golan number one would fit into that book. Do I think Golan one is discernibly better than Golan two? No, I think I would put them in the same bucket. But Golan number one is is sixty five or sixty dollars or pounds more to play than Golan number two. Um, Golan and both of them, like this is not a discredit to Golan number one. Both of them are 100% places that when you see them, you will have, you will see something unique, something you can't really see anywhere else because of this Golan Hill. Now Golan one, why I think it's a little bit more highly regarded is that it has more majestic views throughout because it plays higher on the hill. So if you get to the seventh tee at Golan number one, it's maybe arguably you could make probably a case. I haven't been all over Scotland, but it's probably one of the best views in all of Scotland. From there, you can see Muirfield, you can see Renaissance Club, you can see uh, you can see the Edinburgh Castle, you can see all the way across to Fife uh, on a clear day. It is majestic, and you play down along you know the cliffs of of there and and you're right on the Firth of Forth uh it is a a gorgeous golf course um uh it's a little bit longer a little bit more of a championship test than goal number two it's got some really great holes um it is uh you know you again I think like the thing that I I I I notice about the advantage of of the routing that doesn't come back to the clubhouse you know so many times like you get the courses that come back and go out and this isn't the case for all of them but like the weak holes or the holes that have to come back to a predetermined place and the holes that have to leave a predetermined place so when you have that out uh that out the returning nines you know one 18 nine uh and ten are kind of they have to be certain places, and that's not always the best places for golf. The strength of both Golan 1 and Golan 2, to me, are the stretches of really, like, you know, all, you could extend this back to, like, you know, all of them are really strong once they get over the hill, but that middle part of the round, and, like, the holes that stick with me at Golan 1 and Golan 2 the most are the stretch of, like, really, like, 9 through through 13 and that's where they get really on the outer parts of the of the property and they get down in those low holes the the more dramatic dunescape uh of close to the sea so those holes down there um are are extraordinary and uh it's it it's a wonderful golf course wonderful golf club and i you know in talking to jeff shackelford his favorite course is going three which he would recommend. There's a there's a shop in town. We could talk more about Boris in part two. That's run by a man named Boris, a hickory shop. He recommends get renting a set of hickories and playing that as a hickory golf course because it's much shorter. But his favorite golf course at Golan is Golan Three, which is the cheapest one. So, you know, that's the thing I think with with golf in Scotland. If you're open to experimenting and doing like. Sometimes the best, the most fun golf courses are the ones that you've heard the least about. Don't be afraid to stop 
and just see a course, even though you've never heard of it or, you know, your favorite influencers never talked about it. Uh, it's, it's never a bad idea to just get off the road and stop and play somewhere because a lot of the, you know, the, the thing you'll notice out there is pace of play. Like, you know, we played four sub at kill spendy. It was two hours and 45 minutes. It was wonderful. Like you can stop if you're, if you got three hours between two times, you could stop and, and play nine holes in an hour, you know, there it's not an unrealistic, uh, expectation. All right. So just to cap that off, quick facts that we didn't give up front for Gullen is that the number two course was built in 1898. You mentioned Willie Park Jr. And the number one course was uh, designed somewhere around 1884, I believe. And the designer is unknown. Yes. And, and so it's one of those courses that probably a number of people collaborated on and had a very kind of natural evolution into what it is now, which is a course that can continue to host high level championships and you can play it. You know, you just can go out there and, and get a tea time, uh, which is uh, pretty awesome. So in the interest of time, we should jump over to Ely now, I think, which is in a different region. This is over in Fife, but it is the next course that you played on your itinerary over in Scotland. This club was founded way back. 1832 is the date that I've seen. It's one of the oldest, uh, extant clubs in scotland clubhouse was built in 1875 the course was expanded to 18 holes by old tom morris in 1895 this was the boyhood club i believe of james braid yeah who went on to become one of the great players of the era and one of the great architects of the era so this is a this is the definition of a historic scottish club and the course from what you've told me so far, the little bits that you've told me is delightful. You mentioned that after you played it, you said, I think this is one of my favorite courses ever. And so uh, tell me about why you had that reaction. Yeah, I well, I think circumstance obviously plays a role in all these things. Like I, I was coming off of a, a food poisoning incident. I got it right when I got to to the Fife area right before. What was the, the culprit? Ah, uh, who knows? Who knows? Bad haggis? Bad fish no, and chips? could be bad ribs. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> I, I'm not positive. I can't I can't draw any firm conclusions. It could have been bad fish and chips. It could have been bad ribs. Who knows? But uh, so I got really sick, and it, it was right at the beginning of a major week, which is always like a, a tricky a, a week where like the beginning of a week at a major is, is our busiest time, you know, possible. It's also when all your friends text you about who they should pick, which is, you know, I, I always say, you know, there's a website that I, that I run that has, has picks all over it. <laughs> but anyways, so, you know, it, it led to like kind of catch up on, on Tuesday. I was just trying to like be a human and be able to like walk around and, and do some semblance of work. And then Wednesday by after Wednesday afternoon, I started to feel better. I got we got all the preview stuff done that we wanted to get done to to an extent, and you know Shane Bacon was like, "Let's go play golf." And uh, what a friend, uh, Colin Sheehan, whose opinion I really trust. Uh, he's one of the founders of the Outpost Club and uh, Yale's head coach, uh, golf coach, a great golf course architecture mind. Uh, he told me, Andy, if you see one course in Fife, you have to see Ely. 
And uh, it's one of those people like, you know, in your life, if, if Colin tells me I need to go see a course, I go see a course. Like, you know, that's like a, it's one of those things. Like you, everybody has those people in their life. Uh, so I told Shane, I'm like, we're going to Ely. <laughs> and uh, thankfully, Rue McDonald, uh, Scottish golf podcast host. Uh, and uh, he's a, uh, he works for the European Tour. He's got connection. He he called over, got us set up for the, like the basically the last time of the day. So we were chasing the sun at Ely. I'm I'm feeling better from my food poisoning, and we get in the cab. Like you know, yeah. At this point, you're kind of drowned down by a major, and it'd been a few days since we played golf. And one of the big things about going over there was to cover a major, but also to see courses. So I was really excited. I was like invigorated to go play golf, and you're playing with your friends, which is another huge aspect. So the, the clubhouse has a periscope in it, and that's the famous thing that everybody talks about with Ely. And the periscope's to see the first green, when you can hit off the first tee. And there's a course, Eagle Springs, the nine-holder in Wisconsin, has a first tee shot that's similar to this. And, and to me, when, when a golf course has a first tee shot that's as outrageous as, as like, it sets this tone. At, at Ely, you're teeing off over like a, a seemingly a mountain. You can't see anything. You're just hitting it. And you don't know what's over the hill. And it's like one of the greatest starts you could have to a golf course. And, and to me, like it just set the tone as like you're in for, for something epic today. So you tee off over this thing. The periscope's in the pro shop to let you know when you can tee off. You don't know what's really over the hill. You just hit it. You get over the hill, and it's just this, like, brawny par four. Like, you, you think getting over the hill, you're probably just going to have, like, a little wedge in. It's like, no, no, no. Like, I think I hit three iron because it was into a strong wind. We had a strong wind. It's just like, holy cow. Like, any golf course that starts this, the audacity to start a golf course this way is just unbelievable. So, you again, it's this in-town, out-of-town routing. And to me, the thing that sticks with me with, with Ely is the way the golf course flows. So it's got this, like, it's this traditional, you know, out of town, back into town routing, but, like, you go out to the sea. And what I love about it is you play out, and there's some really great holes. Like, something like the fourth hole, to me, it, it nobody will ever talk about the fourth hole at Ely because it's not on the sea. But it's got this unbelievable feature. It could be like an old wall uh, that's buried. Um, I don't know what it is, but it it goes it runs through the fairway. If you're on the right side of it, you have an obscured look to the green. If you're on the left side of it, you have a, a look at the green, but you the out of bounds. You you're playing along houses of the town, so you don't really want to hit it left because that's you know the one spot. So everybody bails right. You have this obscured look, but this wall. I I think it probably is a buried wall. I'm not sure. It runs per like diagonal across the hole all the way through the green. Like the feature of of something that cuts through the green all the way back through the golf hole and plays a part in every aspect of the of the hole to me that like simple feature is just a brilliant design. But anyways, you go out and you're going out to the sea. You know you're going out to the sea. And they kind of like have these epical like the first five holes there are extraordinary extraordinary golf holes the fifth hole traverses probably the best 
ground on the whole property. It's like this rollicking dune, uh, dunes land. And then you get to the six hole and it's a, a semi-blind shot. And I think this is one of the big things with Ely is that if you don't like blindness, you're probably not going to like this place because there's a lot of it. But the I to me, it's this exhilaration. You just can't wait to see where your ball ended up. You can't, like, I felt like a kid running over these hills. I couldn't wait to see what was next. And the six hole has this great reveal. Like, you're hitting right to the, to the sea. You crest this hill, and it's just this panoramic of all the golf ahead. And uh, Dan Rappaport, he's playing ahead of us. He, he yells back to the group, I want to go back over there, which is where all these other golf holes lay. You know, as he's playing back away, because it takes you there, and then it takes you away, and it brings you back, and then you think you're done. You know, you play really the 10th, the 11th, the 12th. Again, the 10th, the 11th, the 12th, like the meat of the golf course, just like Gullen, is right in the in the, the prime spot of, of your round, right? And Because you, you're not having to return to the clubhouse. You know, you have, you're playing your best golf holes right in the middle of your round. But like, you know, so he's yelling, I want to go back there, which is one of the great, you know, it's the great tease, right? It shows you what, what's coming up, but it takes you back away and makes you wait a little bit longer. In the, in the meantime, there are great holes in there. Um, you know, the, there are wonderful golf holes in there. But then you come back and intends this dramatic short par four that you is completely blind. You're hitting over this like rock cliff and the ball just trundles down to the hole. Eleven's a great short par three that's right on the water. Twelve is an epic par four that bends along. Thirteen's the hole that James Braid said. I think I believe that James Braid said it's the best hole in the British Isles. Um it's a it's a great green site again playing along the sea and then 14 you head away and you think at that point like you know it's starting to get dark for us you know we're i'm i was like i you know i experienced sadness at places when when you know that the round's starting to be over and i thought we were done i thought we were heading home and the brilliance of this routing is that immediately when you think it's over 15 is this great short par four. It's got this huge mound in the fairway that you're trying to hit it. And if you carry it over, I was playing persimmon all week. I didn't carry it over and it rolled backwards, actually like 40 yards. But if you carry it over, it cascades right down to the hole. Um, If you're a little bit right of the mound, you're going to run into the rough, right? Like if you go a little bit left of it, you're going to end up in the rough left. But if you hit it just right, it'll funnel it all the way down to the green. And this whole kind of you come over this hill and again, you get one last look at like the epic holes in the in the in the sea. Right. You just get this one last look at it. And then right when you thought it was over, you get this last reveal and then you head back home, head back into town. This description makes me feel like golf architecture has taken us in the wrong direction. We talked earlier about the era pre-golf architecture and post-golf architecture. And I'm just convinced that if an architect came in in the 1920s and performed golf architecture on the Ely site, that it wouldn't have a lot of the features that you were reacting to out there. 
the kind of playfulness, the blindness, that sense of uh, adventure, right? Yeah. I well, the other thing it has, it has a ton of like ton of blind shots into fallaway greens, which nobody would do today because people would say, "Oh, that's so unfair." But like I think about it, I was thinking about it as like, God, I wish I could hit that shot again. And it, it it's just, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Like it was, is around that it will stick with me for a long time. Not because of the course. It was like extraordinary. I, I've never, I can't, I was so excited to play golf that afternoon. And, and I was like, you know, finally like after you feel like crap for a couple days like you you get that burst of energy um and uh and you know i was so excited to play golf that day i was with people i really enjoy as company and i think that was like you know combined with the way the golf course and in the time of day we were playing it was just a magical day a magical round i cannot wait to see yuli again like that's like one of the things is like I all the rest of the trip I just wanted to go back to Ely, um, and you know is probably my favorite. I it's hard like North Berwick. I loved North Berwick. I you know is one of my one of my favorite courses in the world. Um, but I think all of the circumstances made Ely the most memorable. You know, playing the old course two days after the Open is something I'll never forget, ever forget. You know. <laughs> But something about Ely was this, it just had this magical aspect of the round. All right. I think that's a good place to wrap up. Next Scottish golf podcast that we do, not the Scottish golf podcast hosted by Rue McDonald, which everybody should check out, by the way. It's a, it's a great show. But uh, the next of our Scottish golf podcasts will cover North Berwick a little bit on the old course. We might not go super in depth there because we've covered the old course before and We'll do so, I believe, in, in some other podcasts in the in the future, but we'll, we'll touch on a few things there. We'll also talk about Kilspindy and Dunbar to wrap things up for your first trip to Scotland. All right. Thank you, Andy. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Meg Atkins. If you've been enjoying the pod lately, please consider leaving a rating and review in iTunes. Last I checked, we have 999 ratings there. So if you'd like to push us over 1000, we'd really appreciate it. And we always read the reviews. So make sure to do one of those two. We'll be back this Friday. And thanks for listening.